Please join me in prayer. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Father, what a privilege it is to worship you, our creator, and to lift our voices in song and praise to you, our one true God. The heavens declare your glory all around us, reminding us continually of your love for us. Your presence felt through your, your, presence felt through your promises, your word, and your spirit, also amazingly provided for us, your covenant people in such an expanse of space, time, and worlds, all of which you are sovereign over. Your unconditional love for us is such a gift, your pursuit of us so vital, fulfilling your promises despite our disobedience. Father, that you would choose to save us is a concept our minds struggle to grasp. Our sin is ever-present, and we fall short, short in so many ways. We deserve only your unbridled judgment and sentence, but through Christ you offer ceaseless grace and mercy. Your incredible gift of Jesus crucified paid the eternal price of our salvation. Even so, we fail to respond in gratefulness and faithfulness as we should. Forgive us, Lord, for our shortcomings and continue to pursue us when we flee. Lord, in this moment, we are thankful for the Lenten season that's before us and the opportunities that it brings to draw near to you and to remember the sacrifices you made on our behalf. We thank you for our church and a renewed missional vision to gather, grow, and go into your name, into all things. We pray for our church leadership, staff, and congregation as we seek to engage in your important kingdom work through covenant. Father, in trials as well as triumphs, many times we clearly see your redemption of the world being accomplished all around us, but often we cannot. And as we seek your intercession through prayer, we profess our trust that your ways are not our ways yet your will be done. Lord, we do have trials before us and lift those up to you. We pray for peace and healing for our brothers and sisters dealing with health challenges, specifically for Cindy and Bill Hay. In addition to healing, we pray for strength, endurance, and encouragement. We also pray that your peace settles over the spirit of all who are suffering. Lord, we pray for our missionaries as we seek to support the work they are doing for your kingdom. We lift up Natasha and SIE-ATN, serving with MTW in Haiti and Dominican Republic. We ask your blessing on this ministry and the work that they do for your kingdom. Father, may the gift of your Holy Spirit and your willingness to use us for your kingdom work spur us to grateful and faithful service. What an amazing opportunity to be uniquely called and utilized to accomplish the eternal purposes of our covenant God. Thank you for the privilege of being your people in an everlasting covenant for the salvation you've provided for us, and for the mission to glorify and serve you forever. We pray all things in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. I'd like to thank Robbie for giving me four verses because the last three times I've preached, I had the Ten Commandments, four chapters in Exodus, and an entire chapter of Mark. So, appreciate that, Robbie. Well, let's go to our passage together. We are in Mark 9. We're continuing to walk through Mark's gospel together. Mark 9, 38 through 41. John said to him, Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, 
And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Jesus, belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. All flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Uh, Just as a way of a quick reminder of of where we are in Mark, uh, kind of the apex of Mark's gospel is uh, chapter chapter 8, where uh, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the mount. Uh, He's transfigured. They see Elijah and Moses. They're there in this amazing experience seeing the glory uh, of Jesus. Everything else after that, Jesus has set his face on Jerusalem, on the cross. That's where he's headed. But we're in this teaching period, too, where Jesus is telling his disciples what it looks like to follow him. This is what it looks like uh, to be my disciple. Uh, If you'll remember, shortly after Peter, James, and John come down from the mount, John starts an argument among the disciples of who is the greatest. Uh, Clearly, glory and greatness were were on their minds with what they just experienced, and they start arguing about it. And Jesus seeks to help them understand what glory and greatness actually means to him. Uh, In in the previous uh, passage, we see that it means that you're last and you become a servant. That's what glory and greatness means. And Jesus just before this passage, uh, provides an illustration. He, he, he takes a child um, into their midst. You can picture Jesus putting the child on his lap and saying, the heart of discipleship is welcoming the insignificant, is welcoming the lowly, the humble, uh, the poor, like this child. And so it's on the heels of that that we Come here, and John uh, and the other disciples, sometime I'm going to say John, and it refers to all the disciples. I may refer to the disciples, and it means John. I think John is speaking for all the disciples here. So um, John sees something really disturbing. He's really upset by it. So he sees this unknown man who uh, they don't recognize him, not sure who he is. Um, but he's, he's exercising a demon in the name of Jesus. And, and John just goes up to this man and says, stop it. Right, stop it. You, you have no right to do this. And so for our time this morning, I, I want to look at four questions. Okay, who is this man? Uh, who are the disciples? Who is Jesus? Uh, and what does that mean for us? Okay, so who is this man? Who is this anonymous Exorcist. This is going to go really quickly because we don't know much. We don't know much about this man. Uh, there's some things we can deduce. He is casting out demons, uh, and John even says, in your name. Now, what that means is that the exorcist is casting out demons in the name of Jesus, with and by the authority of Jesus. So this is not... Um, This is not someone invoking the name of Jesus as like a magical formula, okay? This is a follower of Jesus. Um, He's someone that Jesus would go on to say, he is for me, he is for us, 
Um, he is one of mine. So what's the problem? Well, let's look at the disciples. What do they represent? How are they functioning? It's pretty easy to see flaws here in John and the other disciples. I mean, pretty quickly you can see uh, jealousy, pride, exclusivity. Um, John actually gives us the reason why he stopped this man. He says, I I stopped him because he was not following us. Notice what John doesn't say. He doesn't say, I stopped him because he's not following you, Jesus. He says, he wasn't following us. So John sees himself as some sort of gatekeeper here. He's some sort of gatekeeper for Jesus. You know, no unauthorized use of Jesus' name outside of our camp. John and the other disciples, they were the official representatives. Um, and, and they've caught someone doing something. I mean, here's the irony, right? If you remember, John and the disciples uh, were just unable to exercise a demon. And now they're stopping someone that's doing it. Jealousy. But he lacks the credentials, right? He lacks the official title. He didn't belong to their tribe. And so what we see in John and the other disciples is it manifests this them, them versus us mentality, right? Because John is, he's really anxious to safeguard his own position, right? His own role. John's concern actually has nothing to do with Jesus and his glory and his honor. It's all about safeguarding his own position, And even more so, this this desire to safeguard his position, it it reveals a real lack of understanding about the values of the kingdom of God. Okay, there's three of those I want to point out. First, John and the disciples had not understood Jesus' teaching about welcoming people who are deemed insignificant. Remember, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Well, what does that look like? Well, it looks like welcoming a child, welcoming those who seem insignificant. If you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus is having this conversation with the lawyer, um, and the lawyer asks the question, um, who is my neighbor? And he doesn't necessarily ask that out of good curiosity. He asks it because he says, I know there's a limit here of who is my neighbor. I think that's what John is doing here. John has just heard Jesus say, welcome the insignificant like you welcome this child. And then John's just like, but not this guy. Right, not this guy. Some no name, some random that none of us even recognize. He has no right to do what he's doing. Surely, Jesus, you wouldn't be in league with someone like this. And and we are naturally drawn to the important people. Um, And that's just not the way of Jesus' kingdom. Well, the second way that John and the disciples reveal a lack of understanding regarding the values of the kingdom of God is they have an unduly narrow perspective toward the work of God. This man has actually grasped uh, an essential dimension of Jesus' mission, and, and that is the confrontation and defeat of Satan, right? He's the enemy, um, and, and this man is not relying on his own resources here to exercise this demon. 
In using Jesus' name, he's showing us, he knows Jesus is the one ordering the action. Like Jesus, his power is actually active in this man. And again, irony, the disciples were just unable to do this and they were unable to do this, I believe, because they weren't depending on Jesus and his power. They were relying on their own. They failed to understand it takes utter dependence on Jesus not their own resources or strength or or authority or greatness, that strength is actually found in weakness and dependence. That's the way of Jesus' kingdom. Uh, And then the third way I think that they reveal a lack of understanding regarding the values of the kingdom is they had set up unnecessary guardrails around the work of the kingdom. You know, John and the other disciples, they're jealous of their position. Uh, in, in the power. So they, they try to silence this exorcist. All right. I mean, he, this man would bother anyone more intent on establishing kind of who's in and who's out more than they are about growing God's kingdom. And, and so um, the enemy is not actually Satan. It's this man. And he's an enemy because, you know, Jesus has kind of set up The 12 disciples, this is the system and the structure by which God is going to work and spread his kingdom. And so this man wasn't working inside that system. So John was more concerned with protecting the brand than he was the glory and honor of Jesus. John thought he was protecting Jesus. Jesus and his kingdom don't need our protection. Well, how is Jesus going to respond? So our third question, who is Jesus in this passage? Well, Jesus is the sovereign king who defines and dictates how the kingdom grows and spreads. He's the sovereign king who doesn't have to work through our systems and structures and methods and tribes and brands to grow his kingdom. Jesus is the sovereign king who defines what is valuable and what is great in his kingdom. He's the sovereign king who doesn't need John or any of the disciples or any of us to protect him or to save him. He does the protecting and saving. And so Jesus shows great patience and restraint here as he engages John and the disciples. He essentially tells them, you don't get to comment on how I grow my kingdom. You don't get to comment who I choose to spread the kingdom, who I choose to work with and through. That's not your job. See, kingdom work is, is, is not the prerogative of a few. It's, it's the privilege of all those who belong to Jesus. So here Jesus is opposing partisanship. He's opposing um, cliques. Those focused on their own agenda or their own uh, standing. Look, Jesus knows that, that he and his followers are in a life and death struggle against Satan. And he is going to, to take any ally that will unite themselves to him. And he kind of explains how that works. Like, you, look, if anyone is going to join themselves to me and work for for my cause and be committed to that, 
Like he can't at the same time, like turn around and work against that. That's, that's not how this works. So this is where he says the one who is not against us is for us. Jesus is not saying that neutrality is allowed. All right, there's no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. He's the sovereign king who's going to separate the sheep from the goats. But this man should be welcomed because he is on the side of Jesus and he is on the side of Jesus' followers. And, and then Jesus uses another illustration right, to show what does work in the kingdom look like? It doesn't actually have to be something big and grand like an, an exorcism. Um, it, it's, it's kind of echoing verse 35. It, it's an act of humble service. It's an act of hospitality. It's the offering of a, of a cup of water to, to quench thirst. I mean, those who God chooses to work through, he might choose to work through in big and bold ways like exorcism. But he's also going to work through simple acts of kindness like giving a cup of water. That, that's how the kingdom grows. Jesus here is showing us a better way. Like the, the, the way of Jesus is not flashy. Right? It's, it's built on dependent weakness in our Savior. Uh, it's gentle and it's humble because we've experienced grace from our Savior. It, it's going to look really foolish to the world. The wisdom of God always does. In the past year, we looked at 1 Corinthians in Sunday school. Now we're looking at 2 Corinthians. That's the theme of Paul's letters to the Corinthians. The way of Jesus looks really foolish to the world. You remember, Jesus achieved victory by losing, by dying on a cross. Uh, look back on page one of your worship guide. I, I want to read this first quote here from Scott Sauls. Christians possess resources in Christ to pursue harmony between individuals and groups who could not possibly come together, let alone love one another outside of Christ. In Christ, dividing walls of hostility between male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, were turned down, torn down in early church communities. If Christ could accomplish this in ancient times, could he also not accomplish it right now? This might be our best current opportunity for compelling persuasive, persuasive witness to simply be kind to one another in Christ, especially across the lines of difference. To opt out of the modern culture of biting, devouring, blaming, shaming, and attacking in the name and for the sake of love. That's actually the way of Jesus. And he's actually fully resourced us by giving us his spirit. In this way, it's the way of self-sacrificial love. It is seeking the needs of others above ourselves uh, to the extent that we're willing actually to lose because we've actually won everything we need in Jesus. So our fourth question, because of who Jesus is, what does this mean for you and I? What does this mean for us? So there, there is loads and loads of application here. And so um, I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit working in your life and I'm, I'm going to trust that you're going to do some homework. Okay, so um, go home 
and ask yourself some of the particular ways that this passage might actually apply to you. Um, talk with your family. Talk with your friends who are here as well. Um, try and see the ways uh, that this really does impact you day to day, week to week. We're going to try and mention a few of those, but, but there's too many that we could even mention. And so I, I, I ask you to do that. Um, Jesus says, for the one who is not against us is for us. This is Jesus' principle for how followers of Christ, fellow believers, are meant to relate to one another. There's also some application here for, I think, how Christians are meant to relate to the world. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But our version of this actually is a little different. Our version says, for the one who is not for us is against us. Right, And we define the for us as someone who believes fully what I believe, endorses what I endorse, shares my practices, behavior, uh, allegiances. It, it is so easy for us to fall into the trap when this kind of complete alignment is not present, um, then, then I'm not going to have anything to do with you. Then, then you're not my people. And, and it's important to say, listen... Uh, beliefs and morals and practices and convictions and community are really, really important and good and have great purposes. But when they are used to unnecessarily set up guardrails, they're dangerous. When they're used to keep people in check or to exclude people, they're dangerous. And listen, Christians, we, we actually don't, we have a laundry list <laughs> of ways that we will seek to exclude um, or we'll seek to belittle other Christians. I mean, we, like, we'll fight about anything, um, especially Presbyterians, right? I mean, we love, we love our doctrine. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. But when we use that to set up guardrails, that's not the way of the kingdom. Uh, we will do this in regards to different beliefs, practices, and convictions. We'll do this sometimes by binding our conscience on one another. I may have uh, hold something in my conscience. I may have a deep conviction that um, it, it's, it's not to the level, it's not biblical, right? But it's a conviction that I have. And if I project that on some, onto somebody else, or if I um, actually require you to hold the same level of intensity that I hold that conviction... Um, I, that's wrong. That doesn't mean I, I hold the conviction any less, but I recognize like I cannot bind my conscience onto you. Well, just in, just in recent months and years, we've, we've, we've seen how this plays out, right? We, we've seen relationships between Christians broken because of allegiance to political figures or uh, affiliation or ideology. We've seen people leave churches uh, and churches even split because of masks. We've seen churches and ministries fall because people were more concerned with protecting a brand than they were protecting the hurt and the abused. Right? It's really hard for us Christians to not be drawn to the kind of leadership that, that the world kind of puts, puts up front for us. You know, we, it, we can kind of buy into that hook, hook, line, and sinker that we need like a bold, kind of charismatic, strong 
you know, someone who's going to kind of take the fight to our enemies. Um, leadership for followers of Jesus means signing up to wash feet. We've also bought in hook, line, and sinker to what the world is saying about how to deal with those that we might disagree with, right? We cancel them. We shout them down. There's a lot of ways that we do this. I actually want to look at two positive examples of what I'm talking about, okay? Um, Months ago, there was an issue that came to our presbytery. Um, It was an issue we were going to debate. And there was lots of different perspectives um, in the room. Um, And different men held different convictions about this. Um, And and frankly, um, we didn't always do that in healthy ways. Um, It was providing some tension in our presbytery, even in our denomination. Um, But there were two gentlemen that actually reached out to the pastors at Covenant. Um, And they knew that they saw this a little bit differently than we did. And they wanted to just sit down and talk with us. And so we had them here at Covenant. We broke bread together. Uh, They asked about how we came to understand these things the way that we did. And we told them. Even within our pastors, there was differences of perspective. We, We asked the same of them and they shared with us. We pushed back. They pushed back. We tried to persuade. They tried to persuade. And at the end of the day, we shook hands. At the end of the day, we had not changed each other's perspectives. But at the end of the day, our love and our admiration for one another had grown tremendously. And I think one of the reasons that was so meaningful is because that kind of thing just doesn't happen much. Like Christians have kind of lost the art of actually sitting down and and being curious and humble and talking with people regardless of the issue in which we might disagree. Well, another way that we combat this kind of us versus them mentality is through partnership. Uh, Robbie mentioned last week in 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 the last week and a half, we have had the staff of the foundry and the staff of the Love Lady Center here um, at Covenant. And, and now, look, this, this is no secret. We don't actually perfectly align with uh, the Foundry or the Love Lady Center, like theologically. They don't subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith. So what? These ministries are on the front lines of Jesus' battle against addiction. These ministries are seeking to bring people out of darkness into light to see and experience the transforming power of God's love for them. So very easily we could, we could look at them and say, y'all really need us. Y'all need some covenant partnership. But that's not what we're doing. In the Foundry and Love Lady and so many other missionary partners, we are looking at them and saying, you are following Jesus so closely, we want to join you. We want to join you. We want to encourage you and enjoy, enjoy your work in the kingdom and what you're doing. So as, as we engage fellow believers, regardless of our differences, regardless of the issue, let us patiently listen and encourage one another, and let us be humble and curious as we do so. All right, so let me just say a quick word about 
how I think this might apply to, to Christians and how we relate to the world. Okay, so here, here's a little of what I'm observing about Christians in America. Okay, um, we have come to believe that dangers are everywhere. And there are some dangers. Um, we have come to believe the culture is catechizing our ch- children. That's actually true to an extent. Um, I think as we recognize that, we, we adults in the room, need to realize we too are being catechized and discipled. And often it's social media or cable news. So we need to be careful there. We've come to believe that somehow empathy means surrender and that kindness means capitulation. The twin spirits of fear and suspicion become our constant companion. And so in light of Jesus being our sovereign king and our loving savior, how should we respond to a world that is becoming more and more antagonistic to Christians and to the Christian faith? And the answer is never more antagonism. The answer is not repaying aggression with aggression. It's not repaying cruelty with cruelty. It's not rage with rage. Friends, Jesus is calling us to arms. But he, he's not calling us to fight like we might think. He's calling his people to follow him in self-sacrificial love. We're called to live lives of giving rather than taking. And to think first about the needs of others over and above ourselves. Jesus doesn't need us to save him. We need Jesus to save us. We need Jesus to save us from our jealousy and our pride and our exclusivism and our tribalism. Look, Jesus wants us. I heard a pastor about a year ago at a conference said that, that, that Jesus wants us to be a non-anxious and faithful witness. Jesus wants us to be a non-anxious and faithful witness in this world. A non-anxious witness is someone when they enter into a conversation, enter into a relationship, enter into a situation, the temperature actually goes down, not up. Jesus wants us to be humble servants who just aren't going around looking for a fight. That's God's plan. His plan is to unleash humble servants onto the world. But our tendency is often to blame others and take credit when Jesus says, actually, take responsibility, give credit away. When Christians fight the world using the world's tactics, what we end up doing is wounding those that we are seeking to bring into the kingdom. I want to close with this from PCA pastor David Cassidy, kind of a long quote. Um, Jesus' life, do you remember Jesus' last miracle before the crucifixion? Um, he healed Malchus's ear, right? He healed a man wounded by one of his followers. And then he healed the apostle um, who wielded the sword in anger. Um, Malchus's ear was severed from his head by Peter who believed it was, duty to, it was his duty to save Jesus. When the church wounds the world in a misguided effort to defend itself and Jesus, it reduces the capacity of people to hear the gospel. Judas sought to destroy the mission of Jesus through his betrayal. Peter sought to defend the mission of Jesus through violence. But our Savior does not need saving. 
Our Savior is a Savior of mercy who heals the wounded. And he heals those who do the wounding. Cassidy goes on to say, I have hope today not only for the wounded, but the wounding. Because that's how magnificent our Savior is. Christ heals Malchus, but he also heals the Peters too. Well, how does he do that? He heals by his wounds. He was wounded for our transgressions. By his stripes, we are healed. It's Isaiah 53. Jesus did not leave Peter unmended any more than he left Malchus uh, broken and bleeding. What did he command Peter to do? He said, put your sword away. Friends, we don't save the Savior. We have to stop all of the saber rattling. At this table, we're reminded and we're resourced. We are reminded that the way of Jesus is self-sacrificial love. He gave his life for you and I. And we're resourced by his grace to live that kind of life for the glory of God and for the good of others. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being a kind and merciful Savior. A Savior who gave his life, who embodied a self-sacrificial lifestyle for the sake of others. A Savior who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, would you help us by your Spirit to have wisdom, uh, to know the ways that we are setting up unnecessary guardrails, ways that we are acting out of jealousy and pride. Would you help us to see ways that um, we're even seeking to save and protect you and we might actually be wounding those that you would seek to draw to yourself. We need wisdom and discernment in that. And as we come to this table, thank you that you do not leave us up to our own resources, but you give us strength even at this table as we partake in faith that you pour out your grace on us as we come with our arms open, modeling the kind of dependent weakness that we as Christians are called to. And so would you feed us now? In your precious name we pray, amen.